Well, hello from Maui, Hawaii, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and today is the 16th of August, 2009. And if you're listening live, we remind you that you'll have the opportunity to participate as well as listen in a little later in the class today. And you can either use the web page in front of you or the telephone. We'll tell you a little about that. And if you're listening to the replay and you'd like to begin to listen live, well, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Just go to theagelesswisdom.com. Remember the T-H-E. It's the W's dot theagelesswisdom.com. And you see a big button that says free newsletter. Click on that and leave us your name and email address, and you'll get a newsletter every, oh, usually sometime on Friday that tells you about the upcoming class on Sunday afternoon, uh, Sunday evening if you're in Europe. And um, then you'll have the link to each Sunday class. All right. Those are all archived, by the way. And you can listen to the replay of the class by going to the website, theagelesswisdom.com. Click home page to go inside, and then web teleconference will take you to the archive or the library. Today we're going to talk about mysticism and what is sometimes called the perennial philosophy or esoteric philosophy the mystical traditions of the ages, of all cultures and all times. And what I've done is collected what really are, well, ten of my favorite quotations. I don't suppose there's any way in the world we could agree, any group of people, on, you know, what are the uh, the best quotations from this field of, of mysticism. Uh, especially since it is so eclectic. There are so many different sources that we could pull upon. And because the tradition is so rich, every religion has standing above it, or if you will, behind it, a mystical tradition. We pull on those, but the perennial philosophy, esoteric philosophy, or mysticism, goes even beyond the esoteric religious traditions that I'll name for you here to general philosophy and just the, the wondering and the interest that people have in their identity, who am I, their purpose, why am I here, what am I for, and an action plan. Well, how do I go about putting meaning into a life of purpose from my particular point of view. How do we wrap all of that up? That's the field we talk about as mysticism. As you're about to find out, and you probably already know, but we'll reinforce it, the heart and soul of mysticism is your heart and your soul. How about that? It is the center of centers, uh, the, the, uh, the heart of hearts, uh, the uh, the arcana arcane or the sanctum sanctorum, 
Um, the idea of love as an emotion is a very interesting one for uh, psychologists, but we're going to talk about love as an energy, uh, a frequency or set of frequencies, as a spirit that is everywhere equally present, that goes far beyond the idea of love simply as a feeling or an emotion. But as many would suggest, an ultimate source, capital S, source of all reality. And in the end, like the Beatles said, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I saw an interesting movie last night where one of the primary quotable quotes of the film was, you are not who loves you, you are who you love. And I thought that was really nice, because I think they had it in back, backwards in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> in the end of The Wizard of Oz, they say, it's not who you love, but who loves you that really matters. Um, well, that's nice. I, I wouldn't really disagree with it. But your identity can be found, and as I have already suggested, even meaning and purpose can be found in identifying and exploring what you love and what you care about. And if somebody loves you, well, so much the better. And if a bunch of people love what you love, well, that's wonderful too. And and that's just added on. But who you love, what you love, why you care about what you care about, uh, there is not only identity but even motive bound up in this idea and then again, as I say, love going beyond the emotion or beyond the affect or the feeling of love, you're going to see reflected in these ten representative quotes that I have for you today. And that's all they are. These do not stand above any other quotations that I could have pulled upon. They are just representative for me, quotes that have impacted me, that gave me pause. And I thought maybe a few of them might uh, hit you in the same way. Okay. By the way, if you want this posted, uh, I think the best way to do this is to email me, and I will send you a simple Word doc attached to an email, or maybe I'll just swipe and paste in the email these ten quotes. Um it's a lot easier for me to do it that way than to post it on my website or to post it on the web page that plays the program back. It's a bit complicated to explain why, but if you, at the end of class today, decide, gosh, I'd like to reread a couple of those quotes or I'd like to have all those, if Michael would send them to me, just request it in an email to me at mb at theagelesswisdom.com. My initials at theagelesswisdom.com. And say, hey, send me those ten quotes from Sunday's uh, class, and I'll be happy to fire it right back at you. Okay. So, with that, and the promise that we'll get to your live interactive questions and comments by text and telephone, the uh, in about um, oh, 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, let's get going here. 
I'm going to start with a quotation by a fella who uh, you may be surprised that uh, his name is even on the list because he is known to be not so much a, a mystical man uh, as a very, very knowledgeable uh, person and yet often known by the quotable quote, imagination is more important than knowledge, Albert Einstein, yeah, my first mystical quote is from Albert Einstein. And again, consider, this is not the quote I'm going to use, I have another one here for you to begin with, but consider that one I just mentioned as an aside. Albert Einstein saying, imagination is more important than knowledge. Here is one of the most knowledgeable people in the world, this brilliant scientist that that discovered uh, these theories of relativity and and said uh, to Newtonian physicists, uh, you got a good intention and your laws of motion work pretty well for sublight speeds, but it seems to me that when we're talking about small particles, little subatomic quantum particles moving at very high rates of speed, that Newtonian physics gets thrown into our cocked hat. And uh, the great Albert Einstein is saying, so if you think that knowledge is important, wait till you discover imagination. That's much more important than knowledge. And yet, especially those of us who are Americans, we live in a culture that degrades and discounts imagination. I like the song, was it the Temptations, that did just your imagination. It's only your imagination, it's just your imagination. Well, what is more seminal than imagination? How does any discovery begin without imagination? And if we lack the ability to dream and to think big, uh, then what good is logic? What do we have to work with? How can we be reasonable if we don't dream first? And that's what Einstein represents, in many ways, represents to me. Um, and I'm reminded that Thoreau said the same thing. He, Henry David Thoreau said, build your castles in the sky. That's where they belong. But then put foundations under them. Okay, this is the wisdom that imagination is not to be discounted or degraded or discredited. Uh, we see parents doing this with kids. You know, stop dreaming, Junior. Get your feet on the ground and get negative here. <laughs> like, like a realist is somebody who thinks of the problem and somebody who dreams of solutions is somehow less realistic. We gotta get our heads straight. So the first quote is by Albert Einstein. Some of you may know this. It's a beautiful, beautiful quote. And here's the way it goes. The most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mystical. It is the power of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. Einstein. Now, 
I'm not going to quibble with his choice of emotion, using the word emotion to describe the experience of the mystical. Um, because in the very next sentence, if we're going to dissect this a little bit, he calls it a power. So, first sentence, the most beautiful emotion is the mystical. Second sentence, it is the power of all art and science. So he's really saying it's much more than just a feeling, a passing emotion. And then goes on to say that uh, without this emotion, um, you can't wonder. Uh, you can't be, uh, as the British would say, gobsmacked. Or as my generation might say, blown away. And if that's not happening to you, or for you, on a regular basis, you know, if you're not blown away by something wonderful or something fascinating, it's not because there's no news. It's not because there's nothing wonderful or fascinating to be discovered. It's because we get stressed, we get caught up in our daily life and affairs, we get busy, uh, our lives become mundane, and in a sense we die a mini-death. And that's what Einstein is saying, that we become as good as dead. So, I ask you, when is the last time you created room in your life, a space, a time, in every day, maybe several times a day, but wouldn't it be wonderful if at least once a day you set aside ten minutes to wonder about the things that you do not know and do not understand? Or if you just went outside on a starry night, for those of you who live still in big cities, you might have to go out to the countryside. I lived 35 years in Los Angeles and Five years before that in Detroit, and until moving to Hawaii, I hadn't really seen stars since I was a kid, living in a small town in Michigan. Unless we would travel to the Sierra Mountains in California, or I used to like to go out to the, the high desert north of Palm Springs, Joshua Tree in that area, and uh, boy, the stars at night on a clear night were, um, you know, it's trite to say, but close enough that you could seemingly uh, reach up and touch them. And didn't we all as children at some point lay back in the grass or in the lawn chair and look at those stars and ponder and wonder, maybe creating your own sense of constellation and and projecting your own images against the stars as, as we did against the clouds, looking for faces and shapes in the clouds. But beyond that, especially younger people who can remember before the Hubble telescope and before we saw a picture of the Earth from Earth orbit, let alone from the moon, or some rocket heading to Mars, or the outer reaches of our solar system. We've seen those pictures now. 
there is no excuse for us not to share the ageless and timeless wonder of our ancestors when they looked at the sky or to to consider how magnificently beautiful these pictures from the Hubble telescope are. And if you go the other way, you know, turn the telescope around like a microscope and <laughs> look at the micro end of, of things, you see also unexpected beauty and majesty below the cellular level and the molecular level. And this is a magnificent universe. And I thought this was a good quote to start with. So I'm going to read it again. And then I'm going to pause for a few seconds and just let this sink in. I'll do this with each of these quotes. Just take a few seconds at the end to be silent and see what remains in your head and your heart after rereading this first quote by Albert Einstein. The most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mystical. It is the power of all true arts and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wander and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. The next quotation I have for you is by Edmund Spence spelled with uh, an S on the end, S-P-E-N-S-E. And he's an English writer, and the quotation, he has many that could be in here. This is one I'd like to share with you. The mystic desires to be as close to God as possible, if not indeed part of the divine essence itself. Whereas the ordinary devotee of most religious systems merely desires to walk in God's way and obey His will. That's clear enough, isn't it? It's always risky to compare mysticism to religion, but you have to do it in a number of ways. Religion is more about worship, uh, fellowship, but it also has its qualities of dogma, obedience, exclusivity, intolerance. And if we can learn to be tolerant of intolerance, well, <laughs> well okay. Uh, I think there's much to be garnered from all religion. And I think people who come to this class regularly, for the most part, share that idea. Um, to say I'm not religious, I'm a mystic, but I'm as fixed in my view as if I were a religious person. Well, it's like the ego uh, dressing up and pretending to be the soul and pretending to be spiritual, but it's still the ego. If you're separative or exclusive in any way, separative and exclusive, I can say separative or exclusive in any way, um, 
you gotta you gotta get your intention more on more on track with the the need to be inclusive and harmonious um, for the mystic understands that nothing is really separated that everything is related to everything else so there will always be the way of the world which is to look at this as opposed to that right or wrong good or bad winners or losers um, you know dead or alive and yet to move from a you-or-me world to a you-and-me world, to say, I, you know, where you see an or, I see an and. Where you see absolutes, I see relative truth. I think this is partially true, and I think this is mostly true, and yet I don't think either are absolute. The idea that there is both absolute truth in a spiritual sense. Indeed, the word absolute is a, a word a mystic uses in place of God. Right? Because God conjures up an image of a separated God being. Now you've even separated God from its creation. God lives very, very far away. He gets around, you know. Religious people, especially in the Christian tradition, will say God is everywhere. But if you look at the images and the paintings, it's very clear he's a man on a cloud with a castle in the sky. And he's not you because you're bad. You're a sinner. Well, there may be something here that needs redemption and refinement. But it would not be the spiritual part of who you are. It would be the physical part of who you are. The idea that the soul needs redemption is certainly debatable. Um, it's pretty easy to accept that as human beings we could do better. We could find our divine nature and refine it. We could become more gentle and more forgiving and more loving. Uh, we could become kinder and more generous and more patient if that's what we mean by salvation and redemption. If that's what's really meant by, you know, being a sinner or being tempted, um, that's one thing. But this idea of following um, God, how does Spence say it here? Uh, to walk in God's way and obey his will, to be a follower of God, is significantly different from the mystical desire to be as close to God as possible, if not indeed part of the divine essence itself. Indeed, if God is everywhere as an energy, as an organized matrix of magnetism and electromagnetic force that is divine love or consciousness, um, it's like, how could you ever be separated from that? And would that not unify all things? It's like it's like a fish worrying about whether its destination will be wet or dry. For the fish, its destination must be wet 
it, it doesn't, <laughs> the water, the ocean is everywhere equally present. It's, uh, it's not going to run out of water in most cases anyway. And there is no corner of the universe that is devoid of this spiritual presence. So says the mystic. Not as dogma though, but as experience. As intuited wisdom that we find again in all cultures, in all societies, and truly in the mystical traditions even of all religions. I meant to summarize that earlier. Let me take just a moment to give you some examples of what I mean. For Christians, it would be the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians. Um, You ever wonder why the Catholic Church is so anti-Masonic? Why would the Church, the ruled Europe and much of the world for a thousand years, the so-called Dark Ages, where all science came to a standstill. Um, and, and, and I know that, I mean, I was raised a Catholic. I know how Catholics are told that it's the Masons that are anti-Catholic or anti-Christian, but it's not true. It's the other way around. The Masons never had an Inquisition. Uh, they never pilloried anybody or burned them at the stake or pulled their fingernails out or waterboarded them. That was the church, right? And what were they afraid of, right? The idea that God is in all things and that there is an oversoul and that your soul is already redeemed and you're doing just fine and love is everywhere. You know, what is the power and the authority that the church continues to hold on to the, the 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 corruption in human institutions is uniformly present you'll find corruption in every human institution and the church is no different in, in many ways the the granddaddy of it all so I think this is an important quotation in understanding this. Oh, let me finish my uh, my outline here. So for the uh, uh, Christian, the mystical traditions would be, mystical traditions are often described as either Masons, Freemasons, or Rosicrucians. Although even in the church throughout the ages, Catholic and Protestant, Protestant, uh, there are the mystics. Okay, there are those that do not see God as separate and do not see the world and its forms that have the appearance of separation as being ultimately separate. And so you don't follow the separate God. You become, you merge, you experience through a practice of union or communion a uh, yoga, for example, means union. If you're a Catholic and you partake in the Eucharist, that's come union. A little redundant. Come meaning with. Union with. Okay. That's what everybody ultimately is seeking in a world of separation. But the argument the mystic would make is that that separation is all illusion. That ultimately... There is unity. The trick.
trinity in this is that there has to be a middle element between separation, or you could call it diversity, on one end and unity on the other. What stands between unity and diversity? What stands between wholeness and separation? What stands between the one and the many? And it's love. It's harmony. It's the wisdom. It's like a magnetic field that unifies what appear to be opposite polarities on a bar magnet, such that through the magnetic field there's no place on the bar magnet that does not experience the polarity of both ends, both positive and negative. There is no place on the bar magnet that's only negative or only positive. You see a little insight into this where Christ is referred to as the Son of God and the Son of Man. Well, which is it? It's both. Because Christ represents the and, not the or. Let me read it again, and I'll give you a few seconds to see how it hits. Edmund Spence. The mystic desires to be as close to God as possible, if not indeed part of the divine essence itself, whereas the ordinary devotee of most religious systems merely desires to walk in God's way and obey his will. The next quotation I have for you is Rudolf Steiner. Rudolf Steiner, for many years, was a theosophist. That is to say, uh, as an American, the a member of the society founded in New York in 1875 by a Russian mystic named Blavatsky, Helena Petrova Blavatsky, or HPB, as her students would call her. Her best-known student is Alice Bailey, AAB. It was... Uh, deference to divinity that caused them to often use their initials rather than their names, for neither felt that they could take credit for discovering that which already existed. Alice Bailey is known for her 26 books on esoteric philosophy. Blavatsky wrote several important volumes of The Secret Doctrine and Isis Unveiled. Well, Steiner, uh, at some point, uh, had a parting of the ways with the theosophists and set up his own organization called Anthroposophy. And even today, there are wonderful Steiner schools all around the United States and, and Europe, maybe elsewhere. But these Steiner schools are schools where students are taught the basics of education, but also esoteric philosophy, including, for example, astrology. And very intelligent students come out of the Steiner School system. And the people I've met who teach in Steiner Schools are also quite remarkable women and men. There are many quotable quotes by Rudolf Steiner. I'll share but one with you. Knowledge of the world is born from self-knowledge. Our own limited individuality assumes its spiritual place 
in the grand interconnected web of the world because something comes to life within us that reaches beyond our individuality and embraces everything in which our individuality participates. Steiner here is working the middle. He's working the paradox between the one and the many, as we've already referred to. To make the break from a standard world view to more of a mystical understanding of reality, you have to learn to embrace paradox, because that's where truth is found. Instead of avoiding paradox, as most people tend to do, because it's just too damn confusing, or like a reporter, because there's no news story here if it's full of conflicts, the mystic looks for paradox and becomes ecstatic when he or she finds paradox and what appears to be contradiction. For it's in the appearance of contradiction that we find that which is yet to be known, that which enriches and expands upon our limited view of things. To learn to be easy with paradox, to take a breath and sit back and enjoy conflict, and muse, and let your mind race to the limits of your imagination and beyond. Anytime you encounter paradox is to approach wisdom, the ageless wisdom of the perennial philosophy. And so what is it? There's just one thing at work here? Or many separated things. Well, both things are true. Well, come on, Michael, how can both things be true? Right? Or, what is this nonsense from ten minutes ago where you said there are such things as absolute truths, but then there are also relative truths? These things can be settled in your mind. These things can be accounted for. In fact, if I just follow up on the idea of there is such a thing as absolute truth, but most truth is relative in nature, all we have to do is take a look at the nature of the cross. And I mean as a pre-Christian symbol, as an ancient symbol of a vertical line and a horizontal line. The horizontal line does a, representing the horizon, the material world, and the separated nature of things, that's a real good example of the relative nature of things. That this is mostly true, but not completely true. Or this is a 50-50 truth, depends on your point of view. Or this is hardly ever true, but every once in a while it might be true. Okay. You'll find the right wing in America, politically and otherwise, ultra-conservatives and very conservative and very frightened people, they don't like relativism at all. And when Einstein even came out with his theories of relativity, a lot of people freaked out. What do you mean relative? There's only truth and God's truth, and that's the end of it. 
And anything that is not absolutely true must be absolutely false. Well, if you believe that, then you end up in league with the most rigid and rabid conservative minds. And you end up rather angry and banging your fist on the table and watching Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and the local preacher down the street that bangs the podium and screams about heaven and hell and no in-between and God and man and glory and sin and more often than not uses an or rather than an and. So to think of the swing of the pendulum to the left and to the right, the ebb and the flow, the yin and the yang, is to consider not only the extremes, but every bit along the way, that whole middle way, as the Buddhist would say, that middle path. The Kabbalist would say the middle pillar, but it's not limited to the 50-50. It could be a 60-40, or a 70-30, or a 95-5, or a 51-49, don't you see? That's the way life in the world, a life dominated by the appearance of separation, can thus be understood. The vertical member of the cross, on the other hand, is a wonderful model for the absolute and the relative, where the 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 vertical represents the connection so-called between God and man, between heaven and earth, between spirit and matter. And so absolute would be the Godhead, even beyond the Father aspect of God. Most Christians don't think there is anything beyond the Father, but you have the Mother, or the Holy Spirit, the Son, the Father aspect of God, and then the Godhead beyond that. Catholics, check your anesthesia creed, a little-known Catholic prayer that's still used today, references to the Godhead beyond the Trinity that really unifies the Trinity, but the Church is still afraid to teach it because they think you're too stupid to figure it out. That There is a sense of Godhead or totality or ultimate unity, and this is what the philosopher would call the absolute, but on a completely different plane, right? <clears throat> Excuse me, the idea being that in the world there are no absolutes. But in the absolute, nothing is relative. That's a brain structure, but it's good for you to work with. So let me repeat this again. Rudolf Steiner. Knowledge of the world is born from self-knowledge. Our own limited individuality assumes its spiritual place in the grand interconnected web of the world because something comes to life within us that reaches beyond our individuality and embraces everything in which our individuality participates. Thank <laughs> you.
All right. Next quote is a fellow named Walter Hilton. I really enjoy this guy's writing. This goes back, uh, I think, about four or five hundred years. Walter Hilton. Uh, this is very short, but very to the point. But be aware of these really short quotes. <laughs> They're often very powerful. Walter Hilton. Perfect love maketh God and the soul to be as if they both together were but one thing. Let's say it again. Perfect love maketh God and the soul to be as if they both together were but one thing. God and the soul. Plato said as much 1500, no, 2500 years ago, 500 years before Christ, Plato said the soul shares the ground of God. And Hilton is not saying that God, that perfect love makes God and the soul and the separated fleshy being one thing. But perfect love makes God and the soul to be as if they both together were but one thing. So the soul sharing the ground of God, in Plato's words, cannot be separated from the divine, according to the mystic Walter Hilton. Now think of that. If Plato and Hilton and other mystics are right, that the soul is an energy matrix or a spirit, cannot be separated from the ocean of spirit then how could you have a soul inside of you if you are a separated being? Then that soul would be separated. And the idea that upon conception, the divine essence somehow manufactures a little soul and tucks it inside that fetus, or the zygote or the embryo or the baby upon birth, or some believe the soul comes in six months after birth. Who knows? But the idea that the soul could be this separated thing, aye, there's the rub. Uh, you could take a bucket of water out of the ocean, but no matter what you did with it, sooner or later, it's going to go back to the ocean. You could carry that bucket of water far from the ocean, right? You could take it up to the mountains of Colorado and wash your car with it, but eventually it's going back to the ocean. Or if you just sit, let the water sit there and evaporate, it's going to rain down someplace and run into a little stream, into a river, into the ocean. It's always going home to the ocean, right? You can't really separate water from the ocean. You could create an appearance that this bucket of water is not the ocean, but ultimately it is. Now, again, just an example, right? Just a teaching aid, just a little map. It has its limitations. Certainly all, all models or paradigms do. But I think you can get a sense of the challenge here, when the church proclaims 
that it stands between you and the divine. That you must know divinity vicariously. In fact, the the British church even calls its preachers vicars for vicarious. You have to have a vicarious experience of the divine through some minister or preacher, some deacon, some priest or rabbi, rather than the church serving you so that you could serve your own soul, which is already in heaven, and there is the greatest heresy of all, that your soul has never left heaven. And again, I hasten to add perhaps, for what do I know? I'm, I'm a journalist sharing a search for truth that went beyond current events to philosophy, but <laughs> I come to this as a, a seeker of truth and wisdom. I don't know. I'm sharing quotes from other people who don't really know. The beauty is in, as we began with Einstein, the wonder and the awe. But we've been given brains to think and to reason as well as an intuitive nature. And these are ideas that have stood the test of time and should not, you know, that's not, the mystic never wants to replace your belief system with his belief system, but encourage you to grow your belief system, to expand the boundaries of, of your beliefs. And I would have you consider that the idea that the soul is only indwelling and not overshadowing, is not in heaven, that this is the greatest heresy of all. Consider that the soul could not leave the ground of God, that you are an extension or an incarnation of that soul that dwells now in heaven. Right? Isn't that sort of like, have you ever had a boss that gave you a lot of responsibility but no authority? Because if they gave you the authority that goes with the responsibility, it's like, what would they do? Like if the church told you that your soul was already in heaven, and that what needed redeeming was your attitude and your belief system and the way you behave, but that your soul was doing just fine and and could benefit, from your experience on earth, that a soul is really just the unity of all that is from a particular point of view. Wow! And so maybe 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, even 100 years ago, that would be difficult for people to imagine, but you're smart enough now. You're well-educated enough now. You've been exposed to enough science. Quantum mechanics, the ultimate tiniest particles, and the science of the heavens. The, the, the <laughs> if only those magnificent photos from the Hubble telescope. To begin to consider that this whole physical universe is but one plane of existence in a honeycomb of realities. As above, so below. And as it is below, so it is above. The law of correspondence is, we are a reflection. You are a reflection of your soul. The idea of something 
physically dense and apparently separated uh, with weight and size and substance uh, being a reflection of something invisible and unseen is a challenge. But now the challenge is yours. I'll read it again. Walter Hilton, perfect love maketh God and the soul to be as if they both together were but one thing. The next quote I have for you is by a person whose name I cannot pronounce. (laughs) I have no idea. It's a Frenchman, I believe. Uh, the first name is lost in antiquity, but the last name is um, Rekiak. That's the best I can do. R E C C I. I'm sorry. R E C E I A C. But there's little apostrophe over both the E's. R E C E I A C with little. Umlauts, not umlauts. They're like apostrophes on top of the E. Forgive me, I only had Latin, and that was my second language, and I just can't pronounce it. But I know the translation I'm going to share with you is by a fellow named Upton, S.C. Upton. And I really like this. Listen to this. The mystic experience ends with the words, I live yet not I, but God in me. Possessed by the sense of a being at one and the same time greater than the self and identical with it. Great enough to be God, intimate enough to be me. And we're getting to the point in the class where for me to expand on these quotes is to simply repeat myself. So increasingly, I'm just going to let these stand. I also want to save time for your comments and questions. But let me read it again. This is deep. And again, if you want a copy of these, send me an email today or tomorrow or the next day. You might want to do it right now. And uh, then you'll remember, and you won't have to worry about remembering to remember, Excuse me, and I'll I'll send these out to you. Just mb at theagelesswisdom.com, my initials, mb, Michael Benner, Mary Baker, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. Let me read this one more time. The mystic experience, or the mystical experience, if you will. He says, the mystic experience ends with the words, I live. Yet not I, but God in me, possessed by the sense of a being at one and the same time greater than the self, and identical with it, great enough to be God, intimate enough to be me. That touches me inside, doesn't it? This is great poetry. There's no rhyme, but <laughs> but it's great poetry. Now I have two quotes I want to share with you from one of my favorite mystical writers of all time, uh, almost a contemporary, a woman that wrote uh, about a hundred years ago, 
uh, in the early 1900s, early 20th century, named Evelyn Underhill. And she wrote several books on mysticism and inspired many Americans uh, around the turn of the century and shortly thereafter. I have two quotes from Evelyn Underhill. Here's the first. To the mystic, love is the source of joy, the secret of the universe, the vivifying principle of things. That's it. I'll read it again. To the mystic, oh, and I should point out, love is capitalized. Again, we're not talking about a feeling of love. This is not romance. Hey, baby, you're looking pretty good, right? Or, or this is not even the way you love your children, although it approaches that. This is capital L love. This is that which she is divining, defining and divining, if you much bigger than that, the love that embraces all things, the ocean, the one, God as love, right? For the mystic, she says, love is the source of joy, the secret of the universe, the vivifying principle of all things. I guess that's like saying this is the bottom line, right? It's what it's all about. Imagine if you set aside half an hour every day to contemplate love and nothing else. Not just the warm, fuzzy feeling of love, but all of what love implies and involves. How about the loss of love? How about heartache and betrayal? How about death and grief and suffering? as well as the warm, fuzzy presence and the magnetic, attractive nature of love, the affinity of love, the harmony of love, and all of its many qualities, generosity and kindness and forgiveness and compassion and and patience and tolerance and even words like truth and beauty are qualities of the love that mystics talk about, write about, and contemplate. What if you set aside even 15 minutes once a day, every day to just ponder or contemplate love? I bet it would change you. I bet it would bring forth from you something really wonderful. That could be a practice. No guru, no method, no teacher. Just 15 minutes a day reflecting on what is this love thing. Here's another one. Same woman, Evelyn Underhill. Mysticism is the name of that organic process which involves the perfect consummation of the love of God. The achievement here and now of the immortal heritage of man. Or if you like it better, for this means exactly the same thing, it is the art of establishing his conscious relation with the absolute. The movement of the mystic consciousness toward this consummation is an ordered movement toward ever higher levels of reality, ever closer identification with the infinite. 
doesn't that give you a sense that even if it raises more questions for you than it answers, that somebody understands this or is approaching an understanding of this? Let me read it again. Mysticism is the name of that organic process which involves the perfect consummation of the love of God, the achievement here and now of the immortal heritage of man, or if you like it better, for this means exactly the same thing, it is the art of establishing his conscious relation with the absolute. The movement of the mystic consciousness toward this consummation is an ordered movement toward ever higher levels of reality, ever closer identification with the infinite. See, one of the primary benefits of relaxing and meditating as a form of reflection or contemplation is to quiet the mind. You can't be thinking of ten other things and make sense out of that, <laughs> right? You gotta, you gotta slow down, still the body, calm the emotional nature, and quiet the mind ah, with some slow, deep breathing, letting go of muscular tension, feeling really safe. You gotta convince the brain you're really safe for it to allow you to reflect on something that profound. All right, next is a quote by a so-called Rhineland mystic from about the 15th century, Rhineland, an area of Europe that produced a number of great Christian mystics. Jan van Roysbroek said, When love has carried us above all things, we receive in peace the incomprehensible light, enfolding us and penetrating us. What is this light? if not a contemplation of the infinite and an intuition of eternity, we behold that which we are, and we are which we behold, because our being, without losing anything of its own personality, is united with the divine truth. This is starting to come together, isn't it? Starting to make a little sense. Let me read it one more time. Jean van Roysbroek. Again, this is like 400 years ago. When love has carried us above all things, we receive in peace the incomprehensible light, enfolding us and penetrating us. What is this light, if it be not a contemplation of the infinite and an intuition of eternity? We behold that which we are, and we are that which we behold, because our being, without losing anything of its own personality, is united with the divine truth. There's no sacrifice. (laughs) There's really no sacrifice to know the truth. Next is Thomas Akempis, who wrote a magnificent book, again, about four or five hundred years ago. Thomas Akempis wrote a book entitled uh, The Imitation of Christ. It's very austere. 
this is a book for the non-materialists who remember that Christ owned nothing uh, and was discalced, would not even wear shoes, uh, told the rich people to give away everything if they were to follow him, and the irony that the church has fabulous wealth and gold chalices and fine linens and robes uh, becomes very contradictory when you read a book like The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. But here is just a, a brief quote from him. How great a thing is love, great above all other goods, for alone it makes all that is heavy light and bears evenly on all that is uneven. Naught is sweeter than love, naught stronger, naught higher, naught wider. There is no more joyous, fuller, better thing in heaven or earth, for love is born of God and cannot rest save in God above all created things. Thomas Kempis. I'll read this one more time. This is nine and then I have ten. Uh, it, it ought to be obvious to you by now, these are all Western mystics. I haven't put in any Rumi, uh, Hafid, uh, I haven't put any uh, sutras in here, any of the wisdom of the East, and surely we'll do that in the coming weeks and months. And <laughs> you'll hear the same thing, right? But I wanted to begin with the Western civilization and Western culture. Here's a Kempis again. And we're talking capital L love again. This is not emotional love we're talking about. He says, how great a thing is love. Great above all other goods, for alone it makes all that is heavy light and bears evenly on all that is uneven. Nothing is sweeter than love. Nothing stronger, nothing higher, nothing wider. There is no more joyous, fuller, better thing in heaven or earth, for love is born of God and cannot rest save in God, above all created things. Very beautiful. I like it a lot. And finally, we go back to Plato. Let's zoom all the way back. All right? As far as we can go in terms of recorded history. 2,500 years ago, and there are many, many, many quotable quotes, but I thought you'd like this. It's a nice place to end. Well, begin with Einstein and end with Plato. Consider this if you're ill. Consider this when you find yourself ill. Consider this if you're a doctor, a nurse, a practitioner, or a healer. Plato said, the cure of the part should not be attempted without treatment of the whole. No attempt should be made to cure the body without the soul. Let no one persuade you to cure the head until he has first given you his soul to be cured. For this is the great error of our day, that physicians first separate the soul from the body. The great error of the day, that we separate the soul from the body. It's inseparable. Even the idea of an indwelling and overshadowing soul is paradoxical. It's uh, maybe easier to understand if you visit a barbershop with mirrors on opposite walls 
and you <laughs> you look at what happens with barbershop mirrors, and you get a sense of that infinity. Of course, your head's always in the way, but that's that's part of the paradox and, and part of the irony. All right, nothing ultimately is separated from anything else, much less how could the soul be separated from God? Okay. So for those of you who find your frustration with religion beginning with having to deal with images of a cartoon God as a man on a cloud with a castle in the sky, and that's insulting to you, and yet you find much truth and much that is relevant and good and and, and wonderful in, in, in religion, there is this wide, broad, all-inclusive path called mysticism. These are examples from the Western tradition of mysticism, but it's found all around the world, in religion, behind religion, above religion, and uh, I thought I'd share those with you today. So, let's see who's got some uh, comments in terms of text comments and see if anybody wants to call in and has their hand raised. Let me look. Uh, again, if you're on the phone or want to go to the phone now, the numbers are on the website above the player. Uh, you'll be prompted to enter the conference ID. Use any one of those telephone numbers. There's a primary, a backup, and a link with numbers all over the United States you can use to call if you're worried about long distance and don't have flat rate. And then once you're plugged in with the conference ID, star 2 will raise your hand. Right now, I see callers, but nobody at this point has their hand raised. So let's go to the text messages and see who's online and who has a question or a comment for us. First of all, in uh, the Big Island on Hawaii, I'm not familiar with all these names, Papa Aloha, Papa A'a, Papa Aloha. In uh, Big Island, Hawaii, Nurse Susan, who, gosh, Nurse Susan I've known forever and ever, although we haven't been in touch in a long time, met her at KLOS Radio back in the day, and she says, Aloha, Michael, uh, from the Big Island of Hawaii, um, she says it's raining, and um, let's see, just finished listening to your talk. Oh, she was listening to the archives. She's writing this just before today's class began, and she says, I come in kindness and love. So glad to hear you again. Uh, I see you sitting in studios at KLOS. That was a long time ago. Thank you, Nurse Susan. And I hope to see you in Hilo on September 5, when... Some friends of mine, Steve Snyder and Larry Shawanka and I, uh, do a half-day seminar on self-awareness, self-management and time management, really what we're going to be doing. And um, I will have all that information for you next week. I'll have a URL you can visit. And if uh, you're hooked up with me on Facebook, I'll be posting the information there also. And if you're not using Facebook, Get on board with that. It's a great way to stay in touch. I've hooked up with so many dear friends that way. And um, it's a good way to stay in touch and find out what's going on. So I'll have the information for you folks. If you're in Hawaii the first week of September, uh, 
Uh, if you live in Hawaii, especially if you're already on the Big Island, uh, hope you can come and make it. Um, again, that'll be, let's see, Saturday the 5th of September in Hilo, on the east end of uh, the Big Island. In La Habra, Carol Pastel is with us again today, as always. I don't think Carol's missed more than one or two of these in a year and a half. And thank you, Carol. She says hello again, and uh, always nice to hear from you. And uh, Nurse Susan put a couple of quotes on here. She's reminding me of the Van Morrison song, Into the Mystic. Yes, it's a love van. Uh, master of Jelly Roll Soul, the Belfast Cowboy, Van Morrison, Into the Mystic. In Tucson, Arizona, Lorelei Hatch says, Aloha, great class as always. Took your advice on how to handle my work situation, and everything's going much better. I feel like I'm above it all now, and can walk through the drama and the chaos at work with a smile and a column of awareness and confidence. Thank you, Michael. For all your wisdom and insight, peace and love to you and Doreen. You know, a couple of weeks running, Laurel and I had questions about how to handle a boss. And uh, I don't remember all the advice I gave her, but I remember last week we talked about compassion. Having compassion for a mean, nasty boss. Uh, you know, feel sorry for him. At the end of the day, they're, they got to be them. <laughs> what a horrible thing to have to live with. In uh, Hermosa Beach, I'm not sure how this name is pronounced, Teal Park, I believe. And uh, here she says, the first quotation, the Einstein, reminds me of an E.E. E. Cummings poem. Since feeling is first, since feeling is first, who pays any attention to the syntax of things will never wholly kiss you. Holy to be a fool while spring is in the world. My blood approves and kisses are a far better fate than wisdom, lady. I swear by all flowers, don't cry. The best gesture of my brain is less than your eyelids flutter, which says we are for each other. Then laugh, learning back or leaning back in my arms, for life's not a paragraph, and death, I think. No parenthesis. E.E. E. Cummings. <laughs> That's pretty, uh, pretty cool. Hadn't pre-read that, so sorry I didn't read it better. In Irvine, Robert Fiegel is with us, and he says, Aloha, Michael. I think I already know the answer, but would like to get your perspective on this. Where does the or they come from? When I'm doing something or trying to get on new clothes or breaking the rules, I find a thought popping up in the back of my head saying, what would they think? Would they approve? Is this or they coming from my parents or school teachers or both? Where does this need for approval come from? I don't remember thinking about they when I was a child or how do we, uh, and then he goes on, so how do we get rid of this they thing. And thanks, Michael. Excellent class as always. Have a magical week of peace. Well, this is, um, this is huge. I couldn't begin to answer this. Uh, I can comment by saying that it is the nature 
of living in a physical dense world, a physical dense universe of separated objects that we do the basic bifurcation. What is logic but separating? You see, nothing is more reasonable than to go from the general to the specific. That is the nature of deductive logic is to deduce or to subtract, to take things apart. It's how we understand things. And so you look at the stars, you look at the universe, you look at the world, and you say, how am I going to understand this world? And you take it apart. Plus, you have the experience as a child of holding something and then losing it or how many people with their dogs will throw one ball and then the dog comes back with a ball but it wants the pull toy? And then you watch this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've done this. If you have dogs or are around dogs, you see the dog go through this dilemma of it doesn't want to put down the one toy to pick up the other toy. And it wants it all, but the mouth is only so big. I've seen a golden retriever with three tennis balls in its mouth all at the same time. It's part of the, <laughs> it's part of the challenge of living in a world of physical form that we see that which is and that which is not, at least by appearance. We have uh, this and we have that, which is not this. And, of course, we have me and you and you are not me. And the emphasis on the appearance of things and what other people think, all of that comes, I think, Robert, from the basic anxiety, or let's use the F word, the fear of being in a world of separated forms. In other words, I think it's in the nature of separation, the nature of living in a physical dense world of separated forms that we are confused by they or that which is not this creating you or me rather than you and me and the challenge of course is to come all the way full circle all the way around that great Mandela that wheel of life home again home again jiggity jig to the absolute where there is no separation except for the appearance of separation. I mean, you don't even see the object that you call that. You see light reflected off it. You know, you hear sound reflected from it and bouncing through air molecules. And so our experience with these separated objects is even more tenuous than it might otherwise appear. Okay. Let's see. In Albuquerque, Donna says, Hello, Michael. I love your classes. I'm new to the classes, only three of them so far. But I think your analogies, um, yeah, your analogies are great. Um, it's very nice. She says, You truly are a blessing to me and a fantastic experience every Sunday. In the end, yes, love truly is the secret of joy. Love and magic to you and yours. Aloha from New Mexico and Aloha Donna from Maui, Hawaii and all that is sacred. 
Um, that's very sweet. And magic is a word I haven't used today, but love is magic, and that's what's real about magic is love, and that's the power. It's really the answer to every question. But, uh, you know, we're nearing the end of the class, and I wanted to leave uh, time for a little uh, exercise here, a little visualization. So let me just say uh, hello also to uh, uh, my buddy T3, Theo the Thinker in Gary, Indiana. Says, big ups, Michael. Sounding good. Thank you, Theodore. Nice to hear from you. Aloha. In England, Jacob Martin, good evening and good morning, Michael. Good to hear you. Thank you, Jacob. Jacob is a Facebook friend, and uh, always nice to hear from you. And in Compton, James Davis says, the Plato quote is very timely in light of the health care reform. <laughs> yeah, indeed. How can ageless was to be considered at this important place in time? Wow. As we are. I, I don't know how to answer that in every the ageless wisdom that there is wisdom, you know, and that it's not one thing; it's many things. Maybe wisdom as a quality of love can be thought of initially as an intention, as a, a heartfelt longing, the identifying of an urge to want to know more, to insist. Of knowing more about yourself and all other things in the world. We'll just say it that simply. Let's do a quick visualization exercise because it's already 25 after. And uh, again, we've got wonderful attendance numbers today. I want to thank you all for using the send one to a friend. Whatever you do to tell people about this, I appreciate and they will appreciate, and then you'll have somebody to touch base with and and share this material with afterwards. I envision study groups happening where people get together in groups and listen and then talk about it. Uh, again, there's nothing to join here. This is not another religion. It's not even a world religion. It's... Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say separated individuals. Uh, apparently, uh, individuals working in groups to know the oneness of things. And as uh, my wife and I like to remind each other, ultimately there's just one of us here. There's really just one of us here. One mind, one heart, one body. Let's reflect on that for a minute. Close your eyes. Take a nice, slow, deep breath and relax. Sit straight and receptive with your shoulders back and your head balanced. But not rigid, simply balanced and open as if receptive to a gentle precipitation downward of love, of wisdom. of truth and beauty, of the harmony and the understanding that brings that which appears to be separate and surely diverse 
into a harmonious and unified relationship with the one thing, the one life that expresses through all things. Consider that we have matured as a race of beings to the point that we can look at the creation of the physical universe as more than the appearance of separated forms and go beyond the idea that God created this and then created that and consider that what religious people call God is this and that. That when you see your puppy dog running after the ball, that the enthusiasm that that puppy has for life is God's zest and love of life expressed as the dogness or the puppiness of God and the cat that stretches in the sun and yawns is the catness of God. And those roses over there on that bush, not created by God, but an expression of divinity, the need for God, so-called, to be the rose. And more than the rose itself, for that rose will blossom and then wilt and the petals will fall and yet the rose bush lives on so there is a conception there is ideation that is a true form or template beyond the separated appearance of the rose And those trees and that forest and these oceans and this sky, perhaps not so much created by a separated God living outside its creation, but intimate expressions of that which is divine. And then you turn to your neighbor. And maybe that guy up the block that you don't really like that much. And you see yourself in that person, and this divinity in that individual. For if you were born by happenstance into that family, your relationship with him or her would be very different. You might even say, I love them, in spite of their frailties, their faults, and their weaknesses. You just got to know them better. Could you do that for every person in the world? Can you embrace the human family? Can you love your neighbor without excluding anybody? How far up the block do you go before they're no longer your neighbor, before they're no longer your family? And can we embrace all things that exist as reflections of one thing? Can we consider that the middle element between the one and the many, between the creator and that which has been created, is love? Not merely an emotion, 
but an awareness of the bigger picture. The consciousness, a level of being awake that says, oh, I thought these two end zones on this football field were opposites, or the two goals in the basketball court were opposite, and the teams were really enemies, but now I see it's part of one game. It's just one game. And yet maybe it's a very meaningful game. Maybe an essential game. To create a separation. And to imbue the forms in that separated existence with a bit of consciousness that has the capacity to expand and grow until the appearance of separation dissolves. And through harmony, the unity is revealed. And it all becomes true. The many is true as the one. United by the love truth, the wisdom, the consciousness, is the middle element. And perhaps that is the Savior, that is the Redeemer between heaven and earth, between Father Spirit and Mother Matter. Reflect on love, on truth. Seek the wisdom that is within you and within all things. find the peace therein. And from that place of inner peace continue the unfolding, the gradual, spiralic ascension, the stairway that takes us home again, home again. Jiggity-jig. Peace and love, truth and beauty, the wisdom of the ages. There is no separation. There is just one thing at work. And you are an individuated point of view, a particular, diverse, and unique perspective in important ways, unlike any other individual. and yet still part of the one thing. An indispensable part, an essential bit of the whole. And so it is. This is a journey, this is a process. It's an adventure. You're not going to get there. There is no, in this life, there to get to. Just better and better every day, in every way. Onward and upward. Every day, in every way, better and better. Say to yourself, and so it is, 
granting yourself and all that is peace and love. Standing receptive and yet emanating, reflecting that same peace and love out into the world. As if you are the medium or the path of least resistance. And bring that sense of self and all that is with you back into the waking state as you take a nice, slow, deep breath, fill your lungs, hold for a moment, and now as you exhale, uh, open your eyes now, wide awake and alert, feeling rested, refreshed, back in the room, feeling really good. And consider what we said a few minutes ago about setting aside 10 or 15 minutes a day just to reflect on love. No method. No practice, no guru, no teacher. Just a personal commitment to want to know more about the nature of love. Not as an emotion, although that's a great place to begin, but beyond the emotion that is love, beyond the feeling, beyond the affect, (laughs) beyond the brain chemistry beyond the lust, the magic that unites all things. Love heals. Love changes things. Be that love. Be that love. Perhaps it's less that God loves you than that you are the love of that which has been called God. And perhaps God is not waiting for you on the edge of the universe, but closer than your own breath. As the Sufi would say, closer than your breath. Hey, I can't thank you enough for being here. I sure enjoy it. I hope you do. Visit theagelesswisdom.com. Click on homepage to go inside. Click on Web Teleconference to see the archive and to use the Share One with a Friend. And if you'd like to help us remain commercial-free, both on this program, the podcast as well, and in all of the articles and newsletters and blogs and all the supportive stuff we do, visit FocusedPassion.com, our allied site, where for Three ninety-six a month. That's ninety-nine cents a week. You can receive a premium audio program every week, studio quality done by my partner of three and a half decades, Steve Snyder, and me. The Finding Yourself in Paradise series, ninety-nine cents a week, three ninety-six a month. I bought a loaf of bread the other day that was five and a half dollars for a loaf of bread. This is <laughs> this is three ninety six. Okay, a gallon of gas. You get four of these a month. Some months you get five, and support everything that we do 
trying to change the world. Why should it stop? No, well, forgive me, forgive me for saying trying. We are changing the world. You are changing the world. If you change yourself and do nothing, you've changed the world. Part of changing yourself is then going out and impacting other people in a in a positive way. So this is how we change the world, right? Think globally, act locally. Be the change, as Gandhi said. And if you can support us at 99 cents, if you're in a tough place and you can't find an extra 99 cents a week, fine. You've got all this free stuff. Happy to have you here. But if you can support us in expanding what we do as little as 99 cents a week, that'd be super. FocusedPassion.com. In any event, be sure and get the free stuff. There are six complete programs, including a four-part mini-series on accelerated learning. Give that to your kids. Every one of you with kids should take advantage of that free four-part mini-series. We call it the Family Learning Hour. It's accelerated learning. It's how to learn some of the best stuff Steve and I have ever done. It's like, you know, his 35 years and my 35 years added together. All of that is free at FocusedPassion.com, along with a couple other programs that are free samples and a bunch of excerpts and free articles and, as I say, blogs and newsletters. And So check out both websites, TheAgelessWisdom.com and FocusedPassion.com. Remember the E-D on that, FocusedPassion.com. And if you want a list of the ten quotable quotes today of Western mysticism, shoot me an email at mb at theagelesswisdom.com, and I'll fire back a copy of it to you. Okay. Hey, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. As always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. And aloha from Maui, Hawaii.